from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why utilities are charging up to power electric vehicles, how Google and Walmart are building renewables in red states, what happened at this week's Bloomberg Energy Conference, and will your next Uber ride be on a bike? We're pedaling as fast as we can this week on 350. It's April 13th, 2018, Friday the 13th, for those of you keeping score. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me here, as always, is my friend and editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Ms. Hev. How are you? Hello, Mr. Joel, and hello, everyone out there in podcast land. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, busy week. Um, yes. Where are you, Joel? Oh, I'm, Where I'm, are you I'm, calling? Well, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm here at, uh, at Franco Gawa Plaza, um, but I've been, um, I was... Uh, for the first part of the week in Muncie, Indiana. I know, Muncie, I get all the good Indiana. trips. Where is Muncie, Indiana? Muncie, Indiana is, uh, well, it's sort of halfway between uh, Indianapolis and Kokomo, if that means anything to you. It's actually, it's a uh, sort of central, east, central uh, Indiana. And um, it is home uh, of, among other things, Ball State University, which up until this week was best known to me as the alma mater of one David Letterman. In fact, there's a David Letterman um, building media center, I think it is, um, that he at least partly funded there to, for his um, his alma mater. But it's a it's an interesting school with lots of really interesting things going on there and 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 around uh, Muncie and and Delaware County, uh, Indiana. And so, why were you there? I was there at the invitation of, of, of Ball State and particularly of uh, Bob Kester, who's uh, uh, been there for 40-some years. He's both a professor of architecture and director of the Center for Energy Research and uh, Education and Service called Ceres on campus. And um, this is something that I, I do several times a year, visiting uh, colleges and universities and, and, and having uh, meeting with different groups and giving some kind of, of one or more lectures. And um, so that's what I was doing. And uh, it was pretty interesting. One of the things I did was to give a luncheon speech to a group of about 50 or 60 or so people from uh, around the community, um, both the university, but also local utilities and the Chamber of Commerce um, and uh, hospitals and the Land Conservancy. There are a few elected officials, one of the state senators and another state assembly person that were there to, to sort of look at and talk about, first of all, what's going on out there, but do it in the context of sort of the future of, of Muncie. Uh, this is an area that had been uh, heavily in uh, automotive industry, which, of course, you know, went away back, uh, you know, 20 years more years ago. It has been reviving itself uh, in a number of ways. Um, it's not a depressed area, uh, but it's certainly an area that, that could use some some uh, new shot in the arm. And they've got uh, a Muncie Action Plan map and uh, Vision 2021, which is another five-year action plan. Um, so I met with the organizers of that and had a conversation about, um, you know, what's going on and sort of how to take it to the next level. They were interested in um, the book I did a couple years ago with uh, I co-authored called The New Grand Strategy, which is in part about how local economies can um, can embrace sustainability to put uh, security, prosperity, and sustainability on an even playing, even playing field, uh, increasing resilience and uh, creating jobs and economic opportunity and lots of other good things. So we talked a lot about what that might look like in central Indiana. So is there any, what does it look like? Is there anything in particular that you want to mention? Well, I think it looks like uh, for a lot of places, just being uh, more self-sufficient in a lot of ways. One good example is in agriculture. Indiana is one of the most agriculturally rich states in, uh, in the United States, which is itself an agriculturally rich nation. But it, it imports 95% of the food that Indianans and Hoosiers consume because most of what it produces uh, are, are, are soy and and corn, I believe, are the two big crops. And so, 
you know, how do you become more food resilient? You know, resilience is about the ability to withstand shocks, whether it's economic or terrorism or political or health or climate, extreme weather, droughts, and all of that. And, and you know, importing 95% of your food from other states makes it challenging during times when uh, when the stuff hits the fan. So uh, I mean, that's just one example. And there's uh, a lot of it also is, you know, how do you keep young people? How do you create, create the jobs that uh, so many... Uh, what are now, I guess, called Rust Belt areas, um, you know, they they bemoan the fact that people, you know, are born there and they go to high school and then they go off to college and never come back. And I think that's one of the challenges, although they the, have a 20,000-person university and then a couple of other schools nearby and then not that far from Indianapolis and other, other big hubs. So it's less of a problem uh, in Muncie. But um, it's, it's just sort of interesting watching you know, what are the new industries going to be that are going to, uh, you know, sort of be the auto industry uh, or will of, of tomorrow? Uh, and is that even possible or is this going to be um, a lot of smaller industries, smaller businesses? And, and, and that's a lot of what they're grappling with. I mean, one other example is that the uh, Indianapolis, Muncie area, I don't, I'm not sure specifically what the geography is, is one of the 20 or so regions that's vying for the Amazon uh, HQ2, as it's called, the new headquarters or second headquarters, uh, which I think is going to employ, you know, tens of thousands of people. And, um, and, and who knows, maybe it's got a chance, maybe it doesn't. I don't really have any visibility into that. But the question is, is how much of the economic development people be looking on those big scores, of which there aren't very many, versus lots of smaller opportunities where you might have Bring in, bring in companies uh, or operations facilities, university uh, facilities, or other things that might just have twenty or fifty or a hundred employees. You know, is that really the way you need to be thinking? Traditionally, and this isn't just about Muncie. This is really about chambers of commerce and economic development organizations. They're not rewarded for those smaller things. They're rewarded for the big scores. And so, how do you think about that a little bit differently? Yeah. So. You, we know. I know you spoke with a lot of the local officials, um, and of course the, the folks at Ball State. But who else in the community there is really driving that that sort of new thinking? Well, it's really uh, it's taking a village, as it always does. Um, and um, I just had a really interesting opportunity to sit down with a group of them to to talk uh, you know, pretty candidly about you know what's going on and what it would take. But I was inspired by by one particular gentleman, um, now retired, named John Craddock. Um, he's the director emeritus of the Bureau of Water Quality. He's also a Ball State University alum from the late '60s. But uh, what I learned is that uh, Muncie had the first, uh, basically, uh, Bureau of Water Quality in the, in the United States, uh, and it was largely due to this guy uh, John Craddock, uh, who um, you know graduated and, and came back from actually military service and to see that the White River, which runs right through Muncie, was very polluted. Uh, Muncie was uh, the hub of a lot of uh, metal finishing or, or uh, plating operations. So there's a lot of chrome, nickel, zinc, lead in the water. The, the river ran you know, green, brown, yellow, red from uh, raw sewage and untreated industrial discharges, and there were everything, tires and refrigerators. It was it was a mess, as a lot of rivers were back then. And so, in the early '72, and this is, you know, really right on the heels of the of the first Earth Day, um, he created this uh, uh, what's called the Division of Water Quality. Later, changed its name, and uh, and he said he would apply a holistic approach. To, to improve the community's waterway, adding chemical, biological, and physical uh, measurements and um, uh, things that are extremely common today but weren't common at all back in 1972. And as a result, um, the water quality improved, the fish came back, uh, toxic metal discharge uh, plunged 98%, the illegal raw sewage yeah, is no longer a problem. Um, the fish population increased from thirty to sixty-five species, and and then uh, in, and and so on. And, and then out of that came the blue herons and egrets and ospreys and hawks and you know deer, beaver, and muskrats and all those other things. So I was just really inspired by that, and to know that you know Muncie, Indiana, was really where this uh, this began and became the model as C John Craddock was 
then tap to travel around the United States uh, and show other areas how they too could could uh, create uh, the mechanisms to ensure that uh, local water supply was clean. By the way, there's now a John Craddock Wetland Nature Preserve uh, right in Muncie, and I, I think it's really uh, uh, an honor to someone who is uh, probably outside of, of the Muncie area, uh, a, a totally unheralded hero of, of environmental progress. I love that he was a hometown boy that returned and did it for his hometown and I think the passion associated with that sort of um, background is cannot be underestimated. Love that story. Thank you. So what else do we have from Ball State? So one of the things I did while I was there is I took advantage of the fact that uh, Bob Kester, who, again, this uh, professor of architecture and who really heads up a lot of the environmental uh, things on campus and who, as I said, has been at the university for 40-some years, um, I... Uh, took him aside and just wanted to talk a little bit about what was going on in Muncie, Indiana. Here's that conversation. So, Bob, Ball State University seems to be at the center of a regional conversation of Muncie and Delaware County about the future and, and how that relates to sustainability and resilience. Uh, how did that happen? It's a combination of factors. We've had uh, a long period of time in which we have been reaching out to the community through our immersive learning programs. We've done a lot of work in uh, advising capacity with the city and with the county governments, and we've got uh, outreach activities within the community that students are involved in all the time, our eco-rehab housing and several other such projects. So there's that legacy of established connectivity, and then um, more recently, since we're a signatory to the Climate Leadership Conference, we've been trying to find a way to articulate our role in helping the, the uh, city find its uh, niche in the sustainability uh, landscape. And to do that, we've tried to uncover uh, opportunities for uh, retrofits of buildings that the city and county own, uh, installation of uh, community-wide solar uh, programs that help aggregate purchasing of solar installations on houses, and then more recently, we've started conversations about training and education needs. I would imagine that, that, that Ball State is one of the top 10 employers in and around Muncie. Um, and, and they're also a, a large consumer of, of goods and services as well. Does that give you some, some clout, some ability to help transform companies or markets or, uh, that, that might not have otherwise happened? Uh, that is there. It's possible uh, for us to have that role. Uh, we have not exploited that as fully as we should or could. Uh, we do have now a very good arrangement with local farm production. 20% of our uh, food stock that we serve on campus in the various dining facilities is locally sourced. Maybe eight, ten years ago that wasn't the case, so we're, we've made great progress there. And part of that partnership means that by committing to doing that percentage of local sourcing, we guarantee essentially a market for the local producers. So that's become a handshake arrangement. Part of that's a result of the fact that our, the person that used to run our dining facilities is a local organic farmer. He left Ball State and he set up his own shop. And so now he is our gateway to a hundred different uh, producers in the region. You've done some interesting things here on campus, uh, not the least of which is a geothermal heating system that uh, enabled the school to get off of coal in a state where coal is still a very big part, uh, I think maybe two-thirds of the energy mix. Um, what's on your wish list now? Where are you going next? Well, we have a nine-stage uh, energy uh, retrofit repurposing program. It's uh, embedded in our climate action plan, which was a thing that we had to develop for the sake of uh, signing the original president's climate commitment and then the re-up with the uh, climate leadership commitment rebranding. The nine stages in that climate action plan include not only transparency and monitoring and reporting in a public way, and not only the installation of this rather large uh, geothermal heating and cooling system that services all seven million square feet of our campus, but also the requirement that um, we 
dial energy use down uh, in our IT systems, our transportation systems, and, and so forth. So uh, integrated to that is our wish list. Separate from di dialing down the, the demand, we want to reach out now and pursue installation of uh, free energy capture through uh, wind and sun. We have a new building going up on campus that's going to have a very large array of uh, solar panels that will produce about 10% of the demand of the building. It's a very big building. We hope to landscape the sloping wall or roof of our architecture building as soon as we can get some funding uh, with a new photovoltaic array that will produce quite a bit of power for the campus. Um, and then we want to look into a solar farm on some of the property that the university owns that are out in the farmland area. So finally, how do students, uh, what's their involvement here? Um, and do they take what they're seeing here or learning here or, or maybe actually doing here around sustainability out into the job marketplace? Uh, the students have played all different kinds of roles in the work of the campus. We have uh, a Ball State Energy Action Team, which is a group of students that fosters the competitive event of residence halls in the fall and spring where they compete to see how much energy they can reduce their uh, weekly uh, consumption by. Uh, the winner gets a really lovely lamp trophy, which was a homemade thing. Uh, so students have had a role there. Students have been uh, actively participating in our uh, Greening of the Campus conference series that we ran for many years. They've actively participated in our Council on the Environment. They uh, are embedded in a lot of our immersive learning courses, some of which uh, involve reporting out using the Global Reporting Initiative format uh, for documenting uh, our university's impact. Uh, so the GRI reporting, which we've done now for about seven years, has all been student-generated. So they've had a lot of uh, in-the-trenches experience. Many of them go on to leverage that in differing ways. Uh, we also have a sustainability stream in the College of Architecture and Planning that students can take. And so a lot of the folks that graduate with degrees in architecture, urban planning, and landscape architecture also are able to uh, leverage that when they go job hunting. Well, it's an impressive story here and, and uh, one that probably most people that I know don't know about what's going on in, in Indiana in general and Muncie in particular. So thanks for all your great leadership work here. Thanks very much. Enjoy talking with you. It speaks to the hometown influence, someone who, who's been there and lived there and, and can feel passion for where they are, as well as the influence of the future. So good for you, good on you for, for making that trip to Muncie. And uh, now let's get ready for the Week in Review. So there's a lot of energy news this week, and in a few minutes you'll, you'll talk a little bit about what you did, Heather, at the, the Bloomberg Energy Conference. But you also did uh, earlier in the week a uh, piece about charging EVs and sort of how utilities are, are playing a, a growing role there. Yeah, so the thing that um, I love about this story is it, it's a, an entirely new revenue source for these utilities, right? So companies like PG&E, National Grid um, in the United States, and Enel. Um, in, in other parts of the world are investing substantially in programs for EV infrastructure, so charging infrastructure. They're looking at ways of providing um, incentives for businesses, for multi-dwelling apartment buildings, for uh, parking garages and so forth to add infrastructure. The idea is it's, it's chicken and egg thing, although actually <laughs> someone at the Bloomberg um, conference referred to it this week, uh, the chicken omelet <laughs> dilemma is uh, in order to get more electric vehicles on the road, you need the, the way to charge them. And um, while many people will charge overnight at their home or during the day at their business, they need a way of topping off, of, um, of going someplace and, and getting that extra charge to get them maybe to the next town or, or wherever. Um, the range anxiety thing is very real. So many utility companies, um, including those in, in states that are not, you wouldn't normally think of, like M Missouri um, and, and so forth, are thinking about ways of installing electric vehicle infrastructure. So um, PG&E in California, of course, which is, which is putting a lot of money behind this, I think at least half of the money um, 
in, in part of the, the larger um, Electrify America program is going towards that state. But on the, in the Northeast, you see a lot um, happening with Eversource, with National Grid, and so forth. Um, and Enel is doing the same over in um, Italy, where it's helping to connect cities. So, you know, for the utilities, this is like, a, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's a new revenue source. It's like a new load, um, and they want to get their arms around that revenue. But it's also, um, for a business, a way of engaging people to, to want to stick around longer. Um, it's kind of an employee benefit um, for some, a uh, way of addressing emissions related to commuting and so forth. So it's just nice to see that uh, we've got some uh, investments and programs, not just for the vehicles themselves, but now for the, the, the fuel, if you will. Yeah. And it's interesting also just to see as the technology develops uh, that... Um, it's not just a one size fits all. There's these, uh, you know, level one, level two. I think level three and four as well. Each one, each level has a uh, uh, more power, faster. So uh, there are some. Um, we had uh, in the GreenBiz office uh, last week uh, somebody from um, ABB, which is the big uh, European-based uh, manufacturer of lots of technologies, including uh, EV technologies, and they said they have, um, and I think it was might have been a level four. Uh, uh, power system that is so powerful that there aren't any vehicles yet out there that can that can handle the charge. Uh, but the point is, is that the, the charging infrastructure, in some ways, is even getting ahead of what's out in the market. So I'm not sure if that's chicken, egg, or uh, an omelet, or frittata, or whatever. But it's um, uh, it, it's definitely showing that this is a very dynamic technology space. Mm-hmm. And one other point I'd like to make is that. Um, Energy storage will be big here too. So batteries, not just in the vehicles themselves, but also um, supporting these these charging uh, stations, if you will, because um, it, it takes a lot of conduit to build this out. And um, you need, in order to do the fast charging, as you were referencing before, um, you need more backup power. And uh, so energy storage, I think, will pay, play a huge role here as well. And, and you'll see technologies coming into play that are um, not just connected to the grid, but but off-grid potentially. So are, are you hearing conversations about um, the vehicles themselves, electric vehicles, being uh, sort of a rolling battery st- uh, energy storage system that could sell energy to the grid to sh- during peak times? I mean, this is something that's been talked about for well over a decade. I remember Amory Levins at the Rocky Mountain Institute talking about this maybe even 15 or more years ago. Um, still not seeing yet. Yet it, it's something that gets involves the smart metering systems. It involves obviously the Internet of Things and vehicle to grid communications. Um, are we any closer to that, or is that even part of the conversation? Yeah, and it is like an aspiration, a wish, if you will. Um, right now, the the thought is that maybe it will help with some balancing of the grid. But the the sort of two way idea, the, the the idea that you could suck power out, out of a battery um, in a car to help with with demand or, or to you know pull pull stuff onto the grid at d- different times it, it's just not like technologically possible right now frankly a lot of the utilities have not invested in the in the digital um, infrastructure in order to support that I mean it takes a lot of software to um, automate that sort of thing um, now m- that being said Enel actually bought a company last year called eMotorworks um with the software to help sort of point towards us. So you see you see lots of um investments pointing towards that future but right now that whole like idea of like complete vehicle to grid integration is pretty it's going to be pretty hard to do. You're going to see little baby steps t- towards it. Well, let's move over to a related story uh, related to um, sort of the progress of, of utilities in the United States, um, particularly those outside of the traditional leadership states, California, New York, and you know, a few others. Uh, this is a piece that, that I wrote um, that came out uh, earlier this week around how uh, Google and Walmart and Target and Johnson & Johnson um, are working with utilities primarily in the southeast, at least that's the focus of this piece, in the southeast U.S., uh, to uh, ramp up renewable uh, development and, and in the case of the, those four companies, renewable procurement. So um, Google, 
announced that it finally uh, it reached its uh, its goal of 100% renewable energy. And one of the things that that helped um, was that uh, a deal it announced uh, with Georgia Power um, for Google to procure nearly 80 megawatts of new solar power for to power one of its data centers near Atlanta. And uh, Walmart, Target, and Johnson and Johnson are also part of the arrangement. Total of 177 megawatts of solar. It's a it's a pretty good size deal. Um, but what was interesting was that Georgia Power, which is part of Southern Company, which is the third largest investor-owned utility in the U.S., um, uh, you know, is is in uh, covers states like Alabama and Georgia that aren't traditionally, let's say, progressive and environmental issues, but yet are now building these big wind and, and solar installations. Uh, and it's just an interesting dynamic that without renewable portfolio standards or other mandates, these um, traditionally laggard states are now uh, moving towards the front of the, front of the, the pack. Um, and it's all because uh, big companies are demanding uh, they want to move there, and they won't do it unless there's renewable power. Um, as you know, Walmart and and Google are among the companies that have committed or in, in, in achieved, uh, in the case of, of Google, their 100% renewable power goal. And so they're not going to go set up a, a data center, of which they continue to build them, like uh, just pop them out uh, on a regular basis. They're not going to build those in areas that don't have some ample supply of renewable power. So I just thought this was interesting that that the uh, you know southeast U.S. Uh, a bastion of conservative politics is is stepping up um, as a leader in renewables. And by the way, uh, just Alabama, Alabama, which is rarely at the top of any uh, progressive list, uh, uh, is the site of a new solar farm, seventy-two megawatt farm that Walmart uh, uh, flipped a switch on in January to again help power its renewable energy goals. Um, and Alabama Power, which like Georgia Power is part of Southern Company. So this stuff is happening uh, all over. And to Google's credit, they, they spent years, I think I saw, um, I heard Neha Palmer, um, who's with the Google um, Renewable Energy Team, the energy team in, writ large, actually. And she spoke about the arrangement um, this week at the Bloomberg conference. She mentioned that it took, I think, six years to get them interested in doing this. But um, Google's been pretty adamant about the fact that it wants to see utilities as, as you know, in general, offer more green tariff programs. So programs um, that, that allow a, a company to buy pretty easily and directly from the utility to buy the, procure the clean power. Um, it doesn't want to, it has done all sorts of power purchase agreements in order to get um, its capacity to support that 100% renewable proclamation, but it would rather do it as part of just the, the system, the regular system. So um, I like that uh, that it's been a, such a big proponent of that model, um, and I, I hope we see more of it. I think we will. I think, you know, to your point, these companies, they might not be in states that are sort of thought to be progressive about clean energy, but they're they want businesses, and they want they want their economies to thrive, and if, if they want that, then they got to think harder about um, what the businesses want to buy. Yeah, and companies are looking to move and set up facilities in places with uh, lots of land and cheap labor, and, and that's often in the southeast. To your point about uh, this took a long time, I asked Michael Terrell, who's the head of energy market development at Google, to talk a little bit about what was involved, and, and that's exactly what he said. It took a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of hard work. And... Um, one of the things we've learned through this process is that uh, utilities are being becoming responsive to customers' demands um, to have access to cleaner sources of power. And I think this is a good example of it. And, and I would applaud Georgia Power and Southern their parent company, Southern Company, for really stepping up and being responsive to the um, the, the demands of companies like ours um, and requests of companies like ours to put together these kinds of programs. Um, and so that's been a huge positive and, and they deserve every bit of credit for seeing this through and pulling together a program of this nature. Um, but I think the other learning of, from this has been that it has taken a long time and that uh, there's not many um, companies out there, or at least that I'm seeing that, that, you know, can, per, can sort of 
persevere through this sort of long, arduous process to pull together a program and negotiate renewable deals and get the first deals on the table. And um, what we need to be doing is finding a way to make it much easier for all companies to access renewables in this fashion. And uh, I think this is incredibly encouraging, and we're going to have our understanding is multiple companies um, announcing that they're part of this new program. But frankly, we need more than four companies that are signing up to programs like this. We need 400 or even 4,000 in a place like Georgia. And how can we scale these programs to really take them to the next level? The other clip I want to play is with Steve Chris, who's the Director of Energy and Strategy Analysis at Walmart. Um, I asked him to provide a little bit of insight about what do they learn in doing this? And he offered three things that uh, companies should be paying attention to. Step one is have the conversation. So utilize the channels that you have, especially on the customer service side, to have the conversation with the utilities that you want to work with. Um, Because, you know, if they don't know what you're looking for, it's hard for them to provide it. Um, So, I mean, that's a piece of advice that, that I've given on stage even, uh, just because it's, it's such an important one. Um, I think it's important to have some sense of what your tastes and preferences are around risk, around the financial aspects of it. Um, I, you know, ultimately some of, you know, some of these programs, you know, there's the opportunity to save, but that opportunity saved is tied to taking on the incremental risk of, that project. And so, um, you know, the, the projects aren't always going to be in the money in, you know, in each billing cycle, but, you know, I think everybody both on the customer and the utility side are looking to bring the best resources they can to bear, uh, to potentially deliver the best economics, but you have to really have a sense of the customer, what, what you're comfortable with. Um, in terms of, of the risk side of the equation. Um, and then you know, the other part of the, the conversation really is, you know, what are you, what are you willing to sign up for? Um, so for Walmart, you know, we, we can't sign, for corporate governance reasons, we, we don't sign contracts over 15 years. So, you know, we can't look at a program that's 20 years because we, we couldn't sign it. Um, and, you know, just understanding you know, just the contractual details and stuff. There, you know, the details matter on this. And so it's important for customers to have a sense of, of what that is and communicate that to the utility. So there's a, a theme here, I hear, uh, Joel, of, of two-way communications, right? So these companies are telling their utilities what they want. They're telling developers what they want. And um, that came up a lot at the conference I was at this week, the Bloomberg Conference, which I've mentioned uh, few times the Bloomberg New Energy Finance um, uh, Summit that that occurs every year in New York. And I was there. uh, I had the opportunity to speak with uh, several people, um, just kind of tapping the the trends and consciousness. um, Some of the more notable things that I noted, uh, you know, that I took out of the conference um, were um, that really the energy storage equation is is becoming a bigger part of um, the renewable energy planning that's going on. So people are starting to realize that in order to get the uh, sort of intermittent nature of the solar and wind resources handled and to, to remove that objection that the energy storage equation must be part of the conversation. So you heard a lot of um, utilities like Southern California Edison talk about um, about that. Um, we actually, there was, uh, and I have to give him credit because um, I, this was not a particularly uh, receptive audience, I, I think, but um, we had a big coal uh, industry executive there from, from Murray Energy. Uh, Robert Murray, the founder of the company, um, spoke at length and very passionately, actually, about the role of coal, <laughs> the, the theme the uh, current administration continues to um, harp on the theme that we need uh, reliable supply of energy. And um, his Robert Murray's objective at the conference was to basically say that coal should be that source, coal and, and actually nuclear. Um, so there was some worry about, um, and I'm looking up the actual term, there was some worry 
a buzz at, amid the conference attendees about uh, some comments that Rick Perry made, the Department of Energy Secretary, about potentially using the Federal Power Act emergency authority. Is that something you've heard of, Joel? You know what I'm talking about? The DOE? Yeah, there was a proposal to uh, basically subsidize coal plants because they're losing money. Uh, They're not as competitive anymore. And, you know, it's, I mean, this is just dripping with irony because for for decades, you know, we don't want to subsidize solar or wind because we don't want to be picking winners here. And, And coal, which is, you know, just dying of natural market forces, is uh, is is the proposals to put it on, on life support, and I, you know, it's interesting. I'm sort of curious on how uh, uh, Robert Murray was received at this, you know, new energy finance because this is uh, coal is obviously not new energy, but one of the many or uh, undoubtedly provocative things he said uh, was, if U.S. coal generation goes any lower, this is a quote, people are going to die in the dark. So he's he's. Uh, sounding apocalyptic about what happens if coal goes away. I'm guessing, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, that the Bloomberg New Energy crowd maybe had a different view. How was it received? Well, so first of all, there was not a peep in the room. It was standing room only. Um, And I I meant, as I mentioned before, he was, he spoke very passionately about this. Um, And yeah, dying in the dark um, was brought up and your grandmother dying in the hospital and Whoa, and and so so many uh, visions of the apocalypse. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so everyone was kind of silent. I mean, there was people were sort of wrapped, but like kind of horrified in a, in a kind of horrified way. Um, the buzz afterwards was, yeah, they respected the guy for showing up, um, but he was missing the the um, the sort of memo about the future, and that um, you know a lot of things also went into. Um, the grid going down during a couple of extreme weather events that we've had. He mentioned the bomb cyclone. He mentioned some of the, the extreme storms we've had here in the Northeast where power was out. And, you know, actually he was pretty actually negative on natural gas, you know, talking about pipelines freezing and so forth, which natural gas is at the, at the Bloomberg conference is, is considered to be the very respected bridge fuel and lots of proponents. Um, there was a, a really good session on liquid natural gas and, and the growth that you were seeing there. Um, but generally speaking, you know, people respected that he that he had the courage to show up. They respected the the alternative view, but they were sort of horrified by the idea that, um, you know, we should be going back to pollution and and choking. And speaking of the future, I I, I wanted to just recount one one specific conversation I had during the conference. Um, it was with the head of the. Enel Green Power North America, right? So Enel, um, the big Italian utility, has a massive um, uh, operation in the United States and in North America. It's been here for about 20 years, I think. Um, and believe it or not, and, and maybe uh, this was a stat that I did not know, but um, they added about 1.2 gigawatts of renewable energy to the grid um, in the United States last year. Um, they expect another... Um, one gigawatt for every year leading for, into, for the next three years. So, you know, another three gigawatts over the next three years. And they actually um, have the largest amount of contracted commercial and um, industrial capacity for uh, any other company in the United States. That's a, that's a, a statistic that they are um, holding up as of uh, the, the launch of a new project in Illinois. They've got, I think, 24 states. Yeah, 24 states and two Canadian provinces. They are operating uh, wind and solar plants. And one of the things that I spoke to um, Rafael Gonzalez about, um, the head head of that division, was the uh, plan to bring in other smaller companies. And and one of the specific projects we talked about was the Facebook Adobe deal. You might you might remember from a few weeks ago. Um, a deal was announced. Basically, the the simple way of explaining it is that Facebook ha- is behind a, a big wind farm. Um, it's the Rattlesnake Creek Wind Farm in Nebraska. Um, it is a project. It's the first um, Enel project in Nebraska, and uh, Facebook wanted more capacity out of it, but they weren't quite um, ready to use it yet. So they pulled in Adobe to help. Uh, pick up some of the some of that uh, 
capacity off the project. So it was a very unusual relationship, not quite an aggregated deal. Like we, we hear people talking about um, the need for, for smaller companies to be able to participate in these projects um, through big kind of aggregated contracts that, that, that are pretty complicated and so forth. But this one was pretty specific and uh, just came about because um, these companies were talking about their needs and, and they all figured out a way to accommodate them. Let's switch gears here and talk about another story we ran this week from our good friend and editor-at-large, John Elkington. It's called Something Delicious is Growing in the Sustainability Underground. Well, there's a lot of interesting concepts in that uh, intriguing headline. Um, But what this is about is an an underground tour that John took really right right under London, something called the Growing Underground, which is... um, Play, a former, I guess, World War II era uh, shelter or command bunker that is now uh, under the streets of South London, where they're now growing food and growing food uh, in bulk, and uh, it's just an interesting, interesting time uh, to you know show both how food production can you know literally be done anywhere. But also how it fosters resilience, because right now in the in in the UK, uh, supermarkets were recently forced to ration vegetables in the wake of poor harvest in Southern Europe, and so the local production has has clear appeal, and um, and this is being done, you know, a hundred feet underground of of London of all places, uh, and creating uh, uh, produce and other things that are being. Uh, sold at or used at a Michelin-starred restaurant or Marks and Spencer and Whole Foods. Um, so this is just a really inspiring story about the future of food. It's also inspiring because they're using that those tunnels, right? They're underneath the city. They aren't going away. What do you do with that space? Um, I think it said at 8,000 people. So when they used to have these um, air raid drills and, and not drills, right, attacks on the city, um, they could put about 8,000 people could go and hide in these tunnels. Now it's about 65,000 square feet of growing space. So um, just a, a very creative way of using uh, urban space that uh, might otherwise be empty. And, and, and if you think about all of the um, existing tunnels and, and other you know abandoned stations and so forth that are underneath cities around the world, it, it's just a, it's a great use of... Um, of urban real estate. Yeah, and we're seeing that in warehouses. We're seeing that in containers. We're seeing that on rooftops in in Brooklyn. There's uh, uh, Gotham Greens is is growing at scale uh, edible greens on top, literally on the roof of a Whole Foods store. I mean, it's just you know, it's really uh, sort of a great, uh, well, growing area that we'll we'll be paying more attention to. Let's move over to another urban story. Um, on Monday this week, uh, Uber announced that it had acquired a 10-year-old uh, venture-backed startup called Jump Bikes that uh, rents out dockless electric bicycles, which means that they're not sitting like the, the city bikes in New York. Uh, you know, the, these are bikes that can be sort of left wherever they are, and I guess you need an app or something to unlock them. So Uber is now moving into the two-wheelers. Uh, they've why would they want to buy these 250 neon red e-bikes, both electric and, and some non-electric bikes? Um, so according to Katie, it's uh, it's a combination of the right timing for the mobility market and also the evolution of the wireless computing and battery technology. And, you know, also to make Uber a little friendlier. And so she offers six reasons that that why uh, this union has happened. And it's it's pretty interesting read. Yeah, and particularly for me, the the idea that as you're creating these transit hubs, you can jump on a bike or catch the bus or jump in a um, you know a trolley or something to get to the next point of destination. Bikes are a logical part of that, and Uber, of course, is trying to figure out how to put ride sharing or of any sort of any of any sort of vehicle into that equation and be part of that. Um, so that was you know for me like the aha. Um, and you know, the other interesting thing is, is, a could be a purely digital acquisition, digital strategy move on their part, because the technology that jump bikes is using to keep track of its bikes, um, and figure out how to manage them because they're not doc, you know, because they are dockless, they can be tracked 
by GPS. They've got sensor systems that lock and unlock them. Um, and all that's being managed via a cloud service. So I think you're also seeing that Uber liked that technology, that management system. Um, and my guess is that they might want to use that uh, more broadly because that I mean Uber is, of all things, it's a big digital um, infrastructure company, big digital service. And so I think that's that's a lot behind it as well. Yeah, and we're seeing this union uh, crop up other Ford and bike sharing company motivate. They have a network in San Francisco, and you know we're seeing more companies broaden their product and service offerings beyond automotive into multimodal, multimobility uh, operations. So this is what uh, Uber will be peddling next, and it's going to be an interesting ride. Why would Uber care about 250 neon red e-bikes in its backyard, as well as thousands of other non-electric bikes? Here with some perspective is senior writer and transportation analyst, Katie Fahrenbacher. Hello, Katie. Hi, Heather. Joel and I have some theories about this buyout, but you know more than we do. So what's your take on this deal? (laughs) So I think there's several things going on. Um, uh, one of the things is that there's been this explosion um, around mo- mobility services um, in the past uh, few months and years, really. Um, and so there's these new um, kind of bike sharing networks. There's these electric um, bike sharing networks. There's these scooters that have been dropped all over certain cities. Um, and so you see kind of the ride sharing companies, you see the automakers, you see the startups, you see... Um, all these companies kind of jumping in and trying to figure out, um, you know, what different type of mobility they can add onto the service they already have. So the automakers are looking into bike sharing. We've got Uber now looking into these electric bike assist programs. Um, so all these programs are starting to kind of just grow and evolve um, as more and more people um, in urban areas start to use these um, services and give up cars in cities. Um, there's a few other things that are happening too. The bike sharing um, market got pretty hot in the past year or so. You know, there's a lot of venture backed startups. Um, so there's these big companies that um, are interested in acquiring some of these startups Um And then another aspect is just the underlying technology. So um, a lot of this is enabled by um, computing. And so kind of low-cost and ubiquitous wireless networks, cloud computing, mobile apps, the GPS connectors, sensor systems. So a lot of this stuff is really cheap and easy to get now. And so this is the technology that is managing um, and monitoring the connected vehicles. This, This manages and monitors the scooters the e-bikes, the bicycles. Um, So really you can put kind of this technology on anything and you can kind of share any of these vehicles. Um, And so that's kind of really enabling all this technology. Yeah, so New York is pretty um, big on the city bikes, right? That program's all over the city. Um, There's big like stations, if you will, with bikes. and, And they've actually reconfigured parts of the sidewalks and streets to put them in place. So one thing I wonder about is how will, you know, cities and streets look when, when we get into more of these sharing models, when, when things are automated, when they're shared, when they're electric. So I'm, you know, do you have some thoughts on that? I know you've, you've been doing some reporting on that, on that um, transformation, if you will. Right. It's, it's, it's a fascinating transformation. So um, recently I spoke with Jerry Tierney. He's an associate principal with Perkins and Will and um, they're an architecture and design firm, and they um, have been working with a lot of their clients to figure out kind of what the future of these urban areas will be when all the vehicles are shared, electric, and autonomous. Um, so they've worked with some really old, um, you know, industries. They they worked on the Treasure Island project. They worked um, kind of around the giant stadium, um, and so they have started to um, make sure that they prioritize the uh, human people walking around and accessing transportation first, and then the kind of bike, scooter, sharing kind of network second. And third is the um, 
standalone vehicle. Um, and so Jerry spoke with me recently kind of about what all these mobility systems would look like and they'd come together. We did a study with Arup Associates, uh, you know, on 4th Street. And, I, and we use 4th Street just as a kind of a stand-in for, for any street like in San Francisco insofar as it's got transit at one end with the 4th and King Station and it's got, you know, a lot of activities on it. But it basically, it's a typical south of Market Street that's got basically, you know, six travel lanes or five travel lanes and two parking lanes. And then it's got, maybe it's got like an eight-foot wide sidewalk. And you know how hostile, how I many pedestrian hostile those blocks are south of Market. I mean, they are not a pleasant place to walk at all. Um, but we found that basically you could put those streets on a road diet. And if we go into an autonomous world, we can start reducing those streets down to say, uh, we would have one dedicated bus lane. So we would anticipate that you could have an autonomous BRT, bus rapid transit. And then maybe you have two travel lanes and you've eliminated the need for the uh, parking lanes. So now what do you do with the space, the, the three or four other lanes that you freed up? Because you remember you freed up the parking lanes at either side and you've freed up a couple or three travel lanes. And then, so now you can have dedicated bike lanes that are protected, you know, two-way bike lanes that are protected from the automobiles. You can have wider sidewalks and those wider sidewalks can incorporate uh, stormwater management. It can incorporate like little parklets or if it's outside of a cafe seating areas and you know what you see going around town and you're actually seeing a little bit of that for instance in the trans bay district if you look at say beale street and a little bit on main street you can see that they're gradually uh, uh, introducing um you know a re redesigned street um, cross-section with much wider sidewalks so you can get a sense of what's going on there and that's really the opportunity that the autonomous vehicles present. But again, that's an opportunity that really is only going to be realized if we have certain conditions. And one of those conditions is the nature of AV ownership. Uh, and I know that might sound esoteric, but um, you know, if the ownership is basically the traditional, you go down to the dealer, you buy the vehicle, you drive off the lot in your vehicle, or I guess in the case of an AV, you sit inside and are driven off the lot, uh, but it's essentially a private AV, uh, in the, in that instance, we really then just have a hands-free version of today's conditions. In other words, you're just going to have an awful lot of cars with people just in them, but instead of their hands on the steering wheel, now they're, they can legally text and check their email instead of illegally texting and checking their email as they're doing right now. Um, you know, so we really haven't kind of advanced things in any way. And also further, if it's private vehicle ownership for AVs, you have the potential for zero occupant vehicles. In other words, you have zombie vehicles driving around doing the bidding for their owner, going off to collect dry cleaning or going off to collect a pizza from the pizza parlor or doing something daft like that. And, you know, that really would be um, a very negative outcome. Whereas if you go to a subscription-based ownership whereby you go to your, your, your car dealer and you basically sign up for a subscription, uh, that way then you, you, you call up on your smartphone the vehicle that you want. It comes to your door and it's the appropriately sized vehicle. And it's not just the average side sized vehicle, which a typical four-door sedan is. Um, but you know, given that the majority of trips in North America or involve a single occupant uh, for traveling between one and a half to two miles. That's the majority of trips. You know, a four-door sedan is vastly oversized. So you can have an appropriately sized vehicle uh, serving you at that particular time. And those vehicles can increase their utilization. So from the current utilization of, say, a privately owned vehicle, which is sort of utilized for about 4% of the time and is parked or not active for 96% of the time, you can invert that so that in theory, you could have vehicles in utilization 96% of the time and being serviced um, or charged or cleaned up for 4% of the time. So you could have a, a fewer vehicles doing a lot more work. That That is one of the options. But again, you can see that that's based on the um, ownership model that, that comes into play. So again, I keep using the word potential because it is a potential, but it's not a guarantee. So... Is this theoretical or, or is this stuff actually coming into place? You know, how fast will these um, reconfigurations move? 
So some of the big organizations are are already starting to think about this now. I mean, they're they're thinking about it in terms of both conceptual and inspiration, but also making some decisions about what curbs will look like, um, you know, how to deploy city infrastructure, so streetlights, you know, Wi-Fi routing networks, um, things like that. So, and in particular, Lyft worked with Perkins and Will um, on a project redesign Wilshire Boulevard and trying to bring together um, different aspects to encourage the uh, city transit system tried to build curbsides where sharing vehicles could be prevalent um, and try to make a um, layout where autonomous vehicles um, could play. Um, and so let's hear from Jerry speaking about the Lyft project. That was fun. Um, yeah, so John Zimmer, we know John Zimmer actually for quite a while. Uh, he basically said, well, could you guys, you know, give some consideration to what would happen if you were in a world that had, say, autonomous vehicles, um, and what would that do to the streets of LA? And so we actually looked at two instances. Uh, what you, what most of the public have seen is just one, um, but we took a typical boulevard. Um, in this instance, it was Wilshire, and it was uh, over there in uh, basically near UCLA. It was at Wilshire and Veteran. And we had that as a kind of a stand-in for Southern California, large capacity boulevard, uh, a street with 10 travel lanes. And again, we had sidewalks. In this instance, actually, we had sidewalks that were six foot wide. So you can imagine six foot wide on either side of 10 travel lanes. And you can, and then you wonder why people don't walk in LA. I mean, if that's just, you know, you feel like you're walking along the, le- the ledge on the edge of a sewer. And um, so we then basically said, first off, we changed the metric of performance of the street. So right now, typically, a traffic engineer will say, how many vehicles per hour can I put down the street? And we were saying, that's the wrong metric. We should be counting the number of people per hour going down the street. So we looked at the capacity of Wilshire in its current configuration, and we saw that there was, it had a capacity of about 29,000 people, 29,500 people per hour. It had bus capacities uh, in each direction of only 1,900 uh, people per hour. And then we said, okay, let's say we set up an autonomous environment where, first off, we would have a, an autonomous BRT and a bus rapid transit. And an autonomous BRT in this instance, rather than using, say, the large uh, blue buses going out to Santa Monica or red buses uh, of Metro, um, we we could um, basically have a lot. We can have more frequent but smaller buses. So let's say each of the shuttles carries 20, 25, 30 people or something like that, and these were to arrive every minute or 90 seconds. And you could do that because it's going to be autonomous. You're not paying for the labor charges. It's just the capital cost of the vehicle. And now you set up something that really has quite an amazing throughput because you you, you take uh, you remove the kind of anxiety of when is a bus going to turn up uh, because when you go to a stop, you can just look down the street and you can see another one coming if you just missed it. So the center two lanes were BRT, and then we had outside of that, we had autonomous lanes for essentially shared vehicles, which would be like the equivalent of TNCs, that's um, jargon for uh, a Lyft or an Uber. And um, again, we would see using things like Lyft Line and Lyft Ride, but uh, it's interesting that right now for Lyft, their statistics show that more than, I think it's like 51%, of their rides in San Francisco are actually shared, which is quite a remarkable um, uh, statistic that, you know, that at least half of all of their rides are in a shared configuration. So I'm generally an optimist, but I have to ask the question, is there anything that could get in the way of this very cool sounding transformation? Yeah. um, So, you know, the one thing or one of the main things that could be a barrier is um, if these companies um, like Lyft or other startups that um, are creating these new mo- mobility systems don't create a dialogue with the cities that they're building them in. So it was interesting this week, city attorney Dennis Herrera said he's looking into if there's legal options needed to protect San Francisco streets from 
kind of these new um, dockless uh, scooter sharing companies. So those are like Lime Bike, Bird Rides, and Spin. There are these kind of uh, there are these electric scooters that have been kind of dropped off on city streets all over the city. Um, and if you're in big um, major areas of San Francisco, you will notice that these scooters are just kind of piled up in certain areas. Um, and so the city has gotten a lot of complaints about that. And, you know, kind of the lesson learned is that, you know, the city might take legal action against some of these startups. And so that, that would be a very, a big barrier for the deployment of these new mobility services. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization's stories and other things we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. And we'll be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>